If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so you can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. This podcast is part of the Podcast Arcade Network. Hello. Today, I've got Ryan Mount with me as we talk about Gen 13, the movie. We'll talk about the cast, the comic, the animation style, the soundtrack, and the future of Gen 13, all today on Soundtrack Alley. Ryan Mountain with me today as we talk about Gen 13, the movie and the comic book. Ryan, it's good to have you on my show. Thanks for having me. So today we're talking about the actual movie for Gen 13. Now, Gen 13 was a comic book back in the 90s. And what is your initial thoughts on the film? I really liked it. Um, So one of the things that I do is I review uh, DC's animated films uh, for Two-Headed Nerd, quick plug. And I have really struggled to even get through those films. And I watched this and I was just so happy. And I enjoyed it so much more than those. So that's my first quick take. That's really interesting because, I mean, a lot of people really like the way the DC like animated movies are, that they're a far take from what the DCU is, like, you know, the cinematic universe. Um, What are your thoughts in regard to that? Uh, The movies are just poorly done. Like, the animation style is, it's just, it's somewhere between this Japanese influence and cheat done, and, yeah, it's a departure from the MCU, but it's because it's not a far enough departure maybe from the source material a lot of times um you know there were a couple exceptions like the killing joke or something along those lines but like judas contract comes to mind and it was a complete departure from yeah no i agree um i had watched bits and pieces of that film and i even noted that the animation was kind of sloppy did you feel that way 
It's very poorly done. It's super rushed. You could tell they totally don't care. They're probably putting it out for like the 300 nerds that watch it, um, which is me. Uh, so no, they're, they're just, they're not the quality that they're used to. I mean, I, I was just uh, watching some of the animated series and even in season one, you know, before everything was firing uh, on all cylinders with Batman, it was still leaps and bounds higher quality than what they're putting out on these videos these days. Oh, I would definitely agree for the fact of the shading of the effects of having negative light used in even one episode or even the intro to Batman the Animated Series. And when we're talking about Gen 13, the movie, it takes us back to that traditional style that Bruce Tim had done. Absolutely. It felt like watching a 90s comic book cartoon, and I mean that in the best way possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's a really interesting way of bringing out that film because we weren't getting like a high quality, I mean, at the time that the movie Gen 13 was made, we didn't have a lot of other like DC animated films. I think there was only one or two, and that was Batman Mask of the Phantasm and um, Freeze. Sub-Zero, yeah. Sub-Zero, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, that was even before the launch of, uh, I think Superman Doomsday was the first quote-unquote launch into these ongoing DC animated movies and those uh, spinoffs from Batman I don't think are typically not included when discussing the DC animated films. Mm -hmm. Now what did you think of the grittiness of Gen 13 the animated movie? So it didn't bother me at all so I'm gonna so speak you talked about the DC MCU Mm -hmm. and I really disliked uh, Batman, Superman, Dawn of Justice. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, I'm not a minority there, and I don't want to harp on it too much. But it felt like such a wild departure, even though it was revealed to be dream sequences. It it just felt too out there and and kind of lost a bit of the character that that we love. This, and even like um, Son of Batman, which is a recent DC animated movie, it was violent for violence sake and it didn't really seem to fit here. I don't know if it's cause I just don't have the same type of um, connection with the characters, but everything seemed fine. Like it, it wasn't overly bloody, but it still was, I don't know. It, it was in line and it didn't like shock me. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a little cheesecake, but I think everything from the nineties was, yeah. uh, but for violence wise, it didn't actually stand out as bad at all it was certainly grittier but not gritty to be gritty sense yeah yeah and that was the point of gen 13 in general they pushed the boundaries a lot of even the storylines and bringing out some controversial issues with characters and things like that but then in the animation the movie you get some of the quality of like a real life feel to a superhero comic movie and you have like conversations like what uh, Caitlin Fairchild had with her roommate in the opening, like toward the opening sequences where her roommate asked her for a condom. And, you know, it's like, what, where did that come from? And 
it's interesting the way it's put out because it's like there wasn't anything that was coming out at that time. And maybe that's why it didn't, didn't get a commercial release like a real one. Yeah, it definitely, I mean, it was trying to almost get that like liquid television kind of appeal, um, but also kind of straddle the border of, well, this is for the kids who watch X-Men who are a little older. So I understood where it was going and I, you know, it's not my favorite thing, you know, in comics, um, you know, for that grittier or edgy, but here, I, I don't know. I just really seem to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Oh, I agree. I would definitely agree. Um, so for those of the non-comic aficionados that we are, uh, let me pause. I've never read a comic in my life. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> exactly. I know. So I'm going to break down the plot of what Gen 13 the movie is, so that way people that don't read comics have an idea. Uh, Caitlin Fairchild, he, she's a teenager who's offered a place in an institute for gifted children. She soon learns that the school isn't really a school, but rather a military project to turn children into a special genetic structure into super soldiers. Uh, After developing incredibly enhanced abilities, Caitlin rebels against the program that created her. But all is not what it appears. There's some in the military who want to help her, and a deadly enemy is actually a long-lost sibling, which is a takeaway from the actual comic. Um, Because the sibling is not her sibling. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but what do you think of the cast how do you think that they voice the cast really well i couldn't believe like i the names all sounded familiar the voices sounded familiar and then i looked on imdb and it's mark hamill yes uh cloris leachman it's all these wonderful names that are just completely lost you know now like you know, I, I hate to bring it back to the DCU or the DC animated movies, but I just watch them so much and, and critically pick those apart. Um, you know, there was a movie with Damien and it literally, I would have rather had like nails on a chalkboard uh, mm-hmm. that it was just such terrible casting and that they went through with it. Like they fire actors and voice people all the time. Uh, but this was put together by real professionals um, and I even tried to look, I was like, was this done by, um, who's the woman that did all the voice casting for the DC movies? Like, it seemed that good, because yeah. it was Mark Hamill, uh, just it, God, John really Delancey, great. John Delancey, I mean, Q from Star Trek The Next Generation. Uh, now, whenever I read Gen 13, the comic, he's the voice of John Lynch. <laughs> I mean, there's no question in my mind now. Yeah, I mean, the, the, vo- the voice casting was such a relief like i mean i really had no expectations for this movie uh whatsoever and then just to see even you could tell it's you know clearly wasn't like the top of dollars dumped into this you know it wasn't a pixar movie Mm -hmm. but it still had such incredible quality with voice casting and that can even make up for some of the lack of you know really fine-tuned animation oh yeah exactly like For instance, Caitlin Fairchild, she was played by Alicia Witt, who had other projects like Sybil, um, the television show. She was on Two Weeks Notice, 
uh, The Mentalist, and even on Justified, uh, which was that FX series uh, not long ago. Um, and then um, John Lynch uh, was played by John DeLancey, uh, that I've already mentioned. Uh, Freefall, um, who is Roxy, uh, she was played by Elizabeth Daly. Now, she has a super long career of voice acting. Like, I think she is probably a real big professional in the voice acting way because I looked at her uh, facts and it's like, Rugrats, Ah, Real Monsters, Quack Pack, Batman, the new animated series, Powerpuff Girls, and like her list goes on and on and on. So I was really impressed by that. Um, Grunge, he was played by the uh, one of the singers of the Red Hot Chili Peppers called Fleet. Did yeah, you know the, that? Yeah, yeah. I saw, I saw that, uh, and Fleet was an actor there for a little bit, and uh, yeah, I've seen him live. And uh, <laughs> he also played in a bad Mars Volta that I'm a big fan of. So okay, but he, you know, his voice was perfect for that. Yeah, for Grunt, you know, character's name is Grunt. Let's get a '90s, you know, early '90s musician to play him. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. And it was. It really was. And then he also had voiced things on the Nickelodeon show called The Wild Thornberries. Did you ever oh. see that? Yeah, a long time ago. <laughs> what, did he, what did he play on that? I don't know. I, I, can't, I didn't look it up exactly to see what exactly he had done. But, you know, it's like, yeah. And then, of course, finally, last but not least, uh, Mark Hamill being the voice of Threshold. Um, and as we know, he is Luke Skywalker. He's an incredible voice actor for playing the Joker. And he's done several other voice acting jobs, such as doing different voices on um, some of the Hayao Miyazaki films, uh, such as Nausicaa and the Valley of the Wind, Castle in the Sky. He's been on... Princess Mononoke. Um, I'm not sure if he's done Howl's Moving Castle. I don't know if he did, had a voice voice work on that. But uh, he's just, you know, he's just a brilliant, not only voice actor, but actor in general. Uh, what are your thoughts on the on more of the cast? Yeah, I mean, um, Alicia Witt, she sounded to me a little bit like um, one of the do doctors um, from Doctor Who... Uh, companions, the redheaded uh, oh, um, Karen Gillian. Yeah, she sounded a little bit like that. Um, the professional one that played Roxy, she sounded like uh, you know the girl who played uh, Tank Girl. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I, I mean, I, I kind of love that. I, that's who I thought it was, and I was like, wow, this couldn't get any more nineties. Um, <laughs> but it, it was fine. It all fit. Like there wasn't anybody that really stood out like that was, Oh, they don't, they don't belong to be here. Or this was just, you know, a quick casting plea. Um, you know, like everybody was cast perfectly. I mm -hmm. mean, you know, even, you know, this isn't, I wouldn't say that this is one of Mark Hamill's best voice performances. I mean, it's very, um, like soft spoken jokery, like, you know, without any of the crazy put in there. But it still wasn't bad. Um, 
And he still, like you could tell, he was doing it over the top because this character, Threshold, is very over the top. So, go ahead. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I just phenomenal casting. And, you know, the, I couldn't believe, like, I, I was watching this movie on YouTube and with zero expectations. And, like, I've already watched it three times, you know, since you asked me to do this podcast. Uh, so probably more than any other movie. Uh, that's how much I really enjoyed it. Cool. And a big, big part of that is the the voice casting for sure. Yeah. So, you know, the movie had remained unreleased in the U.S. And it was because Disney was a copyrights owner uh, to be considered commercially between DC. And DC, of course, owns the comics that the movie was based on. Uh, but the movie was released and sold in Europe and even other markets. And with the distributor being Disney, they acquired uh, the rights through Marvel. And, um, and it was really interesting because they were engaged in manufacturing Wildstorm and its parent company, DC, which is really weird. Um, Wait, and- how, how did Marvel play into all this? Well, According to the information I have, uh, Warner Brothers Seven Arts uh, acquired the DC Comics in 1969. So with that, even though Disney was engaged in manufacturing Wildstorm, um, it never released uh, in the US. And so while Disney at this point now is involved with Marvel, uh, Gen 13, the rights to putting out the movie is still tied up in development hell because they can't decide where it's supposed to go and when to release it because they can't decide who owns it at this point between Marvel and DC. And uh, because at one point, because uh, the rights were through a Marvel company uh, that was, with the production of the film of Gen 13. But of course, now you can find it on YouTube and watch it even in HD. I I found that there's two separate ones that you can watch and one of them's in HD and one of them's just like a recorded copy. Yeah, I think I I watched the the higher definition one. Yeah. Uh, This, you know, this might be jumping the shark a little talking about the comics though. Maybe that's one of the problems with Gen 13 and then it's overlooked is because I walked into my local comic shop that I go to, uh, shout out to Mavericks in Cincinnati, and they do everything by publisher. So, mm-hmm. and I went and was like, where's Gen 13? I was like, is it DC? Is it Wildstorm? Is it Image? And it was, you know, he just put it in Image and then even though like, you know, when I started reading Gen 13, it was Wildstorm, which was a DC imprint. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe that's one of the things of why, you know, does is, is that blurry line, you know, it existed for the film, it existed in comics, you know, is that part of the reason why it's, you know, not a very sought after property, you know, young <laughs> X-Men, basically? Well, yeah, and we'll get into that a little bit because um, now we can talk about, you know, the comic because we're talking about a film that's based on a comic book that lasted for over a decade. Um, Gen 13 has even, you know, 
I mean, it just ended probably three years ago. Like the imprint for the last Gen 13 comic that was printed was probably three years ago or four, depending. Uh, but Gail Simone had written that most recent uh, comic run of Gen 13. Now with Warren Ellis being involved with Wild, the Wildstorm or creating a new Wildstorm universe, which I'm really excited about. I want to get the first trade. I didn't want to get just the individual issues of the, of the Wildstorm, but I wanted to collect it as a trade to read it as a whole story rather than just individual issues. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. I read the first two and then like, I pick up way too many books every week. And so it was like one of the ones like, this is good. I'm just going to wait for the trade because I'm a little lost. And, you know, if it's not bi-weekly at this point, trying to remember month to month, it's getting old. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) You're not old. Uh, But anyway, you know, we look at the original run of Gen 13 and it was Jim Lee, Brandon Choi, and it was partially now this is something i really noted was that it was only partially uh drawn by uh j scott campbell um a lot some of it is actually drawn by jim lee because jim lee was the kind of the defining artist of the 90s it seemed like you know he had a distinctive style to him and you know, bringing out the X-Men and having all of that type of style that he had. And then J. Scott Campbell comes in and he's like, well, I'll help illustrate or generally hired him. And uh, it went on from there. And so, I mean, Jim Lee's Wildstorm universe exploded with so many titles and so many different areas that they could take individual characters of the same universe and pop them into different series and say, oh, look, uh, this character is showing up in Gen 13 this week or, uh, or Gen 13. The Caitlin Fairchild is showing up in Team 7 or uh, Deviate, you know, and uh, they could do that with their own cross, uh, cross-dimensional uh, universe. And I really like that fact for uh, the Wildstorm universe. So I was definitely, because what, that was early 90s, or even 93. like 95, 93. 93. Yep. Um, so I was, I was a big Marvel kid. Uh, so this kind of fell out of my, I don't think I was reading too much. I mean, I remember the spawns, you know, so kind of coming similar around that time. Like that was the big uh, book that was pushed, you know, was the edgy one. And this kind of like fell off my radar. But one of the other things, too, is when you talk about the original run of Gen 13, do you consider Volume 1 and 2 basically the same? Because I know Volume 1 was, what, like four issues? It was five. Um, But yes, I do. Because even though it was considered to be a miniseries, it took you, and if anyone of the, you know, our generation can remember the 90s and the idea of... Um, Wizard Magazine. Wizard Magazine, ah, you may laugh, (laughs) but uh, there is key features to Wizard Magazine that were very essential to comics. 
because they would put out those one half issues and um, they were very specific because like when you tie uh, the mini series of Gen 13 to the like the second run, uh, which is the main running series, which was issues one through 77, which I own. <laughs> I own that whole run and I'm excited for when I can get it bound. Um, but uh, the whole idea is one half and zero tied those, that mini series to the first, that first set of series. And that's what I loved about it was that it didn't really draw away from the story at all. It like, it melded each one together. Like you could see that continuity uh, going on in that one half issue and then the zero issue of saying, oh, did you read this one half issue? Because that ties together with the zero issue, which ties to number one. Yeah, so the n number one that I found in the, the back bins this week, uh, it is a very Spawn cover. It's uh, grunge, basically, as like Spider-Man. Um, oh, yeah. You know, and it literally says in McFarlane style, but it's done by somebody aping him. Yeah. Uh, and I picked that up number one, and I was like, what volume is this? And I was trying to figure that out. I'm guessing that it's the start of volume, quote-unquote volume two, which is right after the miniseries. But if somebody had just picked that up, like, not knowing anything, they'd be completely lost because That's... it does not it's, – it's not a real jumping-on point. It's like, all this major stuff happened, and here you go. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that's the key feature is like, you're like, oh, what's going on? By issue one of the second series, you're like, I need to read the previous series to catch up. Um, and that's the way I felt when I initially read the first whole series was that I was like, well, I wonder what really happened. What was the origin story to this whole group of team and how have I – loved this team so much and enjoyed the uh, dynamic of what it was. And when we get to the idea that um, I, I really liked that following the run of uh, Brandon Choi and J. Scott Campbell were John Arcudi and Gary Frank. Um, they had a very realistic style of handling the writing as well as the art. And it was really a dramatic change from what the J. Scott Campbell run sort of being from like issues, oh, probably one to 20 um, became. And, and it dealt with the more fantastic elements of the story. And then Scott Lobdell returned the title with the less serious and more sexual roots of the title being not as well received from fans. Now, what do you think of that? I mean, did you do any research into some of the runs? So I, I picked up number the number one of quote unquote volume two. I read that. Um, I had in my hand, I think it was volume three, number one, uh, which was Chris Claremont. Oh yeah. That and was actually the third series. Yeah, and I got a couple pages in, and I was just like, I'm not going to read this. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, at that point, Claremont, you know, had really started on the decline of, and it just, it, 
it seems so interesting. Maybe it was just like, I can pick up a comic like Spawn or even this original Wildstorm and go like, oh, this part of the early 90s. But there was something about the time when that rolled around and like that was coming out that it just doesn't appeal to my aesthetics at all. And I was just like, I don't want to read this. It just, so I put that down and I picked up Gail Simone's number one. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the only other one I picked up was that uh, I saw when I got it here, Warren Ellis and Steve Dillon did an an annual. And I was like, Mm -hmm. yes, please. Um, (laughs) Cause I love both those guys. Um, And it was really funny, you know, like Dillon's work in there. I don't know when it came out the relation of everything, but there is a character that looks just like Jesse Custer uh, from Preacher. And I was just like, I love this. You know, a lot of people say it's really simple art, but I still find it some of the most compelling. So I really enjoyed that. And then, um, you know, I will say, so when Gail Simone's run started, uh, that was when I got back into comics. I took a long break. And then I was in college uh, studying political science and having to read some of the most boring books ever. Like I needed something just to unwind. And I was in an airport in San Francisco and I think I picked up Wizard and they were talking about, uh, you know, Civil War coming back or starting. And so I started going through and it happened to be the launch of the new Wildstorm universe. And uh, the girl I was dating at the time, she loved gen 13 she had some attachment to it so she picked it up and because she picked it up i i read it uh and i just went back and read uh number one it was tough to get through um which is surprising because gail simone is a writer that people really love and but i still haven't heard anybody say like they really love anything modern Mm -hmm. but Welcome to Tranquility, which also came out the same time as Gen 13, is still one of my favorite all-time series. Uh, It may be, well, for that fact, it may be that she was um, devoting more time to that series rather than the Gen 13 series and just kind of, oh, um, I'll just write something here and there and, you know, it'll make sense. Okay, all right. That that is good to know (laughs) because I was like, how is it? You know, we see some of these guys like Brian Wood and Cullen Bunn now who write four to five compelling series at a time. So I don't know if she's just one of those people like, you know, slot is like, I can't write more than two books. Otherwise, I completely fall apart. And maybe, you know, she was a hot name and no, totally speculating here. Yeah. No, I agree. the, The art was... Okay, they tried. It was very much trying to update what they had done from the 90s. And I don't know, for a fresh starting point, it was trying to eat your cake, uh, you know, have your cake and eat it too. And I think it just fell a little flat. Um, I'd be real hard pressed to go back and and really dive into her run after reading that first issue. Um, But I might go back and read some of the 90s stuff. I don't know if it's because now there's enough distance and we can all say like, yeah, it was ridiculous, but there was some good storytelling and art being put into it. Oh yeah, I would definitely agree. And and then when I was doing some of my research and how they were talking, oh, the Gail Simone run, it has no continuity whatsoever. And the fact uh, it said 
in my notes that they placed the franchise apparently in capable hands. However, uh, she put in a, she said that she had put in a strong sense of characterization and a unique new take on uh, the, uh, the team and said that grunge was uh, the smartest member on the team, which is really off from what he's supposed to be because he's not supposed to be the smartest because Caitlin Fairchild is like a brainiac and she's super smart. Um, but another thing that I noted was that so many people were feeling that the treatment of her run had no continuity to the original. And I brought this up before. However, you know, when you look at, I think it's probably within the first 20 issues of the series because the sh series went at least 50 some issues. And I mean, that's pretty good for a run. Um, but, uh, it's somewhere between the first 20 issues and you see this panel or a series of panels, like two panels on each page and it's the gen 13 crew and they're walking through like dimensional portals and behind them is different actual comic covers of the series that we know issues number one through 77. You see different covers from that series and you're like, how can this not be continuity when you're using covers from the original series? Now, do you know with any of the other, I guess it was World Storm and not Wild Storm or... Yeah. Uh, did anything else, like I remember the Authority, I think three issues came out in total. It was like Grant Morrison was writing it, but was was there any like throwbacks in the rest of the series? Because wasn't Wetworks, you know, back in it as well? If I'm trying yeah. to remember. Oh yeah, Wetworks was in it. Um, Wildcats uh, was still in it, and that was in 06, of uh, 2006 when they brought all this continuity. Um, that they had of Worldstorm being the basically the end of the Wildstorm universe for that time. And uh, they said that the universe's finale came in the form of a crossover uh, of Captain Adam Armageddon. Now, following the conclusion of this series, the entire Wildstorm line was relaunched with Worldstorm. And so Worldstorm showed that a new Gen 13 series had come out, and that was the Gail Simone run. Now, um, from that point, it says the future of Gen 13 was taken away uh, from their home lives. It's revealed that their parents had been assigned to raise children. Um, and in the course of the series, it revealed uh, that these Gen 13 kids were manipulated and formulated from birth. And some of it's just kind of all mishmashed. You know, they, they really didn't know where to put some of these characters. Yeah, you know what's so weird about that is that I could have swore that Armageddon happened after the conclusion of all these series. Like, I didn't think it was a precursor to before. And, like, I remember the Welcome to Tranquility Armageddon one was completely shoveled in. And I kind of skimmed through it. Um, 
this past weekend as I was just going through some of my old titles. And mm-hmm. I am so confused by this continuity. I mean, like, you know, DC must have known it was a trouble because it wasn't too f- much longer that they did the new 52. And I guess maybe they tried it and like, oh, we totally figured this out with the Wildstorm universe. There, nothing can go wrong with this new 52. Yeah. <laughs> and yet uh, we find otherwise. Uh, yes. Because we know that the uh, the new 52 was, you know, a fair change from what anything had been brought out before. Um, we get the idea that Caitlin is now with the Ravagers. Um, we have, what was interesting is like different members of the Gen 13 team would show up in different issues of different series of the new 52. Like uh, Caitlin Fairchild showed up in a Supergirl issue. And that was really bizarre. Or it may have been Superman or Action Comics or something because it was showing a, uh, a breakaway from the original ideas. And she was, it was a very dramatic panel that they showed for her reveal. And it was really interesting because it's like, oh, this is, this is like a callback to the 90s. And yet it didn't lead anywhere because you have her leading a team and she's a gen factor. And yet, you know, it didn't go anywhere. So do you know now, I guess the lasting legacy of Gen 13 as we kind of go through the volumes here is, you know, they showed up in the new 52. The new 52 is basically gone. And they, you know, DC's new launching point. Um, now, I know the Wildstorm just released, but are they, you know, I don't know if you've read anything. I know you haven't read the issues. Are they going to be a part of it? Is it going to be spanning out? I mean, are they still kind of in there? Where is the series right now? They're kind of in limbo. Okay. Um, there was a, uh, there was one teaser image that they showed recently. Um, well, fairly recently, within the last year. Uh, you can probably look it up, like Google it and say Gen 13 cover 2016 or 2017. And it'll show you an image of what they had proposed to bring the Gen 13 team back together uh, as a title. And at that point, that article was written as Warren Ellis was already writing The Wild Storm. And it was already in pre-production for that series. And so from the information that I've read that we're going to get Wildcats, we're going to get Team 7, and a couple other books that all tie in with that new The Wild Storm. And um, I think Gen 13 is going to be a part of that. And if it is, I'm on board because I want to see what Warren Ellis does with that team, because if it can be um, bringing it back to what the whole real idea of Gen 13 was, that they were a group of kids that were kind of superheroes, and yet they were trying to figure out their place in life. Um, I think the idea with the Wildstorm, uh, it could really bring them into that universe really well and have them be a part of like another team. I don't know if Warren Ellis is the guy to write Gen 13 though. I mean, because 
you know, his most compelling team book was Next Wave, which is one of my all-time favorites. I don't know if that's where most people want to see him go. I would love a bonkers bananas, like total rejects, you know, uh, you know, saving the world almost by accident. Um, you know, but I like my comics a little sillier these days. Yeah. I don't know if he's actually going to be writing it. Um, cause I'm assuming that he's getting different writers to take on these different titles. Cause there's no way he can write five titles all at once. Um, cause he's right now writing the wild storm. And so he may have other plans for other writers to do the wild cats. And, uh, that's another team that I really like. And there's, you know, that whole TV series that actually came out that was in regard to the Wildcats. So. Well, all right. Who do you want to see? Right. Gen 13. You be, you being the number one Gen 13 fan and fanatic, <laughs> who do you want to write the new series? See, that's a really hard question because I would, I would want something, somebody like Mark Wade or uh, someone with some character development um, because I, I think Mark Wade could do it or even Colin Bunn because um, Colin Bunn's done uh, DC work uh, quite a bit and he's been really good at it or, or a new, new uh, writer that I can't think of. Yeah. Colin Bunn would be great. I don't know if you're reading his X-Men Blue right now but he is nailing the teen voices. Um, it's his best big two work that he's done. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love all his horror stuff. Uh, I read it, you know, that's the stuff that I'm really into. Uh, but his X-Men Blue right now would be a really good fit. So I don't know. Maybe we tweet that out to him. Say, yeah. hey, what are you doing? <laughs> and, and also think about this, that Gen 13 is kind of a uh, um, influence from what X-Men was that you know they have they're led by an older man and that they're trying to protect um different people from this dangerous world and uh there's so many social aspects that are involved with x-men in general and then you see kind of like this you know not really uh kind of a a comparison not really a comparison but a a like a mirror of what Gen 13 is and say, oh, this is kind of like this character in X-Men or this character. And uh, you have these different inspired characters that are in the Gen 13 universe that were originally X-Men. Absolutely. But you know what? I mean, even, I wouldn't call it derivative inspired by, there have been plenty of books that have been probably better than some of the original concepts that came out of them. So, Oh yeah, I would definitely agree with that as well. Um, did you know that there were three actual um, novels that were made uh, for Gen 13? I had no idea. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the first one was called Time and Chance, and it was written by Jeff Marriott and Scott Sinton. Uh, they featured a criminal mastermind who enjoyed gambling and he captured the formula for creating superpowered beings and planned to use it to increase his power. Uh, in another one, Nether War, which I own, uh, it's also written by Jeff Marriott and then Christopher Golden. And it begins with the old ally of Lynch meeting with the group. And the international operations apparently made contact with the realm of hell itself underneath a casino 
uh, that it secretly owns, which is, you know, pretty funny. Uh, and Gen 13 must infiltrate the already affected building and close down the portal before all humanity is doomed. And then finally, you've got version 2.0, uh, which is by Sholly Fitch, and it focuses on the diabolic plan of the team's old international operations nemesis, Ivana. Now, you remember Ivana from the animated movie. Yes. So uh, then at that point, she's fallen from graces or the good graces of the government, and she's a maniacal evil doer. Uh, so uh, those are, you know, some of those three different novels that actually came out of um, the whole series. And then you think about how many um, crossovers that Gen 13 had. Um, do you recall any of those? Gen 13 Fantastic Four, right? <laughs> That's one of them. <laughs> So, I mean, that that is probably my only early exposure to Gen 13, um, just because I was, was, still am, big Fantastic Four. Uh, can I tell you anything about that series? No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I know, but back then, it seems like a lot of crossovers were happening. You know, Marvel DC got along, you know, uh, Image kind of got along, I guess. Uh, because when they crossed over, were they part of DC at that point, or were they still in the Image family? Um, at that point, I'm not sure. I'm not sure which they were part of, because they could have been in limbo at that point. <laughs> yeah. Now, did they cross over with everybody, though, I think? Like, didn't they do an X-Men run as well? Uh, um, they did a uh, Divine Right. That was a crossover with Divine Right, and um, that was a Wildstorm... Uh, title so that would have been DC um, they did one with Spider-Man so that was another Marvel um, they did several like little individual stories that were different um, they did one with um, Monkey Man O'Brien that was Dark Horse so that was a different uh, run as well that was only two issues but uh if you go back and read the initial run of Monkey Man O'Brien, uh, that's like three issues long, and it's Arthur Adams' art. And then Arthur Adams came back to do uh, Gen 13 Monkey Man O'Brien uh, for the artwork and this story. Or, well, right. he, didn't, he didn't do the story, but uh, yeah. So my question is, so... Say you are not like you or I and going to go track any, anything up and you want to put Gen 13 into the hands of somebody who's never read the character, picking up a comic for the first time. What are you telling them to go pick up and read? Well, uh, this is the original five-issue run of Gen 13. Um, everything you need to know about the characters, about the initial storyline is found in here. Um, you, you get the really initial idea that um, this is a superhero team that develops their powers uh, by being almost forcibly uh, shot like into them uh, because they're not initially gen active um, and Caitlin Fairchild's father 
was part of that. And you get that storyline actually in Gen 13 uh, issues 1 through 77. At some point in the first 20 issues, you have that storyline where she's actually talking to her father. And um, her father shows up later in the series too. And she, he kind of has an alternate view on everything. But yeah, I would definitely say the first five issues of the first series, which is that mini series, it's the best run out of all of it. Now, how close was that to the movie? Pretty close. Um, the only differences I can see with that in the movie is the fact that Threshold is not uh, Caitlin Fairchild's brother. Um, in the movie, he is. But in the comics, he is um, he is Bliss's brother. Or, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, Bliss is a sibling of Threshold in the comic. Or, yeah, in the comic. And that actually makes more sense to where it gives you a more, a better feeling that uh, you have a real villain in the comic uh, as compared to the movie where it's almost a moral issue because it's like, well, do I kill my brother because he's being so evil? And, uh, you know, it, it really, I guess, draws more emotion on uh, the audience, maybe. Yeah. So was the, well, here's the one thing. Was it just supposed to be like a one and done kind of feature or had they like such huge high hopes for this that like, we're going to put this movie out and then we're going to spin it into a TV show and kind of build from there? Well, it was received really well in Europe and across the seas. However, it didn't go any further than the movie because there weren't enough viewers uh, to initiate that. And then at that point, a lot of people weren't really reading Wildstorm over in Europe. And so the draw of having that movie released in the U.S. really wasn't there. And it's kind of sad that it wasn't released because it would have been received. I think it would have been received really well. And you would have had, you know, the, the initial uh, star power of... Batman animated series artist Bruce Timm uh, doing the artwork for the animation. And it was far better than anything that we had gotten compared. You know, we already had Batman, the animated series, which was fantastic. Uh, but we would have liked, you know, something like Gen 13, the movie. That's my thoughts. <laughs> and, you know, I, I kind of, I really, I, one thing that really led me to really do this podcast about Gen 13, the movie, is the fact that I communicated with Amos Plesner. Uh, he is the composer to the score for the film. And that, it just blew me away because I wanted a chance to maybe interview him because I loved Gen 13 as a comic I loved the movie itself. I wish, like, I had, you know, these reserved funds to be able to get the movie uh, through uh, the means that you can over the internet. Because <laughs> you can. You can find the DVD, and it is playable on U.S. 
uh, DVD players and stuff. And um, it would probably be a higher quality than anything that we're getting <laughs> on YouTube. Uh, however, uh, we don't have that and I don't have the funds to get it. Um, but Amon's Plesner was really uh, amiable and he communicated with me over email and he sent me like all the cues he had on the score, like everything from the score he sent me. And it was just fantastic because uh, he's known for other works. Uh, Amon's Plesner did X-Men, the TV series, which is, you know, something that we all cherish from the 90s because we were not only getting stories of X-Men in the comics, but the TV series, the animated TV series, was just one of those series that you kept on wanting to watch. I think more people probably pushed on the shove. Remember the, uh, you know, animated series over actually what was happening in the comics. Back yeah. Then. Yeah, exactly. Because they actually took you and said previously on X-Men and, you know, then they, they tie you into what's currently happening and um, you have more of a connection to that TV series rather than the comic. And this, uh, I mean, that's really cool that you got to talk to him and he sent you all that stuff, you know, for the score. Uh, I was amazed at the score. Um, there were a couple, like, questions I kind of had and maybe kind of dated it. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, but yeah. I really you definitely tell it was like a 90s score. <laughs> yeah. So. But I really like the fact that this was mainly a classical orchestra score. Like, 90% of it is something you'd associate like the original Superman movie. I mean, I'm not saying it's like John Williams good, but you know, that same sort of style and like really add some gravitas to this, you know, lower budget animated movie. And I I couldn't believe it. Um, The only weird part was that there were some weird techno slash industrial things kind of like thrown into some of the cues. Um, that I just was kind of head scratching. I was trying to figure out what they're doing. Um, well, think about this, that the nineties was kind of a period of time where they were experimenting with synthesizers and um, they were getting away of the synth of the eighties and using more electronic uh, instruments. Um, they used more, I mean, they blended orchestral and electronic instruments to where they were experimental for different elements of the score and so they were like well these are new instruments that we've never used before let's let's put in some of these industrial instruments or let's put in some of this techno to kind of draw it to a crowd and uh that's what i found with it um it's just you know it's it's a unique blend of different Uh, scoring uh, cues and the way I feel about it is it has this orchestral feel but it also brings you to a modern age and shows you what they could accomplish at that time with musical scoring. Yeah I mean I think you know you're right on on most that the, I'm looking over my notes here and like the start of the movie, it's very dramatic. You know, we see the father murdered. Um, 
sorry, spoiler, uh, <laughs> for, for a 17-year-old anime movie. Um, yeah. You know, he's murdered, and it's very, like, it kind of swells, and, you know, you kind of feel the gravitas of the situation. You then cut to the credits, and it's this techno-industrial, and, and it seems like they didn't really want to put that in there, but they felt like they needed to because the top, I don't know why they felt like they needed to. It would have been fine because maybe 10 to 15 seconds into the credits, it immediately goes back to just straight orchestral. Yeah. And I didn't catch any, you know, the techno elements, synthesizers just completely faded out. Um, I'll say my, so the weirdest part of the score that stood out to me was the training montage. Um, I also do not like training montages <laughs> yeah, in like I, any I'm movies. I just, I can't get, I don't know. The only one I like is, is in Rudy. Um, a, a movie, uh, I don't know if you've seen, but you know, yeah. it's a football movie, Notre yep. Dame. Um, James Horner. Yep. So like, that's the one training sequence yeah. I, I can stand. Uh, and I have a personal story behind that, but that's another podcast. Uh, this was... Like, it started techno, but then there was, like, the orchestra under it. And then it started to go to, into rock. And I think they were trying to, like, blend, they wanted the rock in there because, like, grunge was kind of featured. You know, that's the other thing, too, is I feel like with a character named Grunge, there probably should have been something. I mean, maybe that would have dated the movie even further. But even so, like if you just had some elements of that music when he was fighting or something along those lines, maybe I would have enjoyed it even a little bit more. Um, you know, grunge has just been on my mind a lot with, uh, you know, I went back, listened to a lot of old Soundgarden and passing Chris Cornell. Um, but that was the only one that like felt like a major misstep. Like they didn't know the direction they really wanted to go in. Um, or almost like the film was made, and then they're like, and then here's this, and, you know, trying to piece it all together in one style just would have been impossible. Um, but other than that, like, you know, there were also elements, too, that totally reminded me of Hackers, which, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. that was a great soundtrack. And then I think they put out three to four more inspired by. Yeah. Yeah, it was at least four <laughs> albums that were inspired by Hackers, and yet all they were doing was mishmashing different uh, elements of um, Orbital and uh, the popular techno albums of the time. And uh, it's like, well, I'd rather have the original. So for you, for somebody that like, you know, really gets into the soundtracks um, and like listens to it as a full piece, I mean, do those stand out to you as almost misplaced if you're just looking at it as a piece of music like forget the fact that it is uh underlining the scenes and everything like if you're just plugging that in listening on your headphones going for a drive whatever the case may be you know is that seem like such a violent change in style you know when watching the movie as opposed to just listening to it or I think the experience that I've had is when I've listened to the score, because this morning I listened to it a bit, uh, just playing it through. And it's not a very long score. 
um, it's only about a 30 minute score because some elements of the movie, there's no music. Um, there's just animation. There's just the talking and sound effects and it's not any music going on. And ironically, that's how I was viewing uh, Planet of the Apes today is ironically, there's not a lot of uh, film music in that. There's a lot of silence. And I think it's more effective that way when you're actually watching the movie. Um, when you're viewing the score, like just listening to the score, to me, it wasn't really jarring. There were a couple elements where I was like, well, that's different. Why did they use that there? And, you know, I, I kind of try to look past that little moment of a miniature cue put into this cue that's gorgeous and orchestral and you get this buildup of action and and then you have like this 90s rock uh guitar in there and i'm like well that doesn't really fit but maybe plesner was doing that to try to appeal to uh the time the time that it was made um i wish i would have had a chance to actually interview him but at the time he was in israel so <laughs> shout out to the homeland. Yeah. And uh, so he was, he was probably doing something uh, in other ways that he couldn't be able to be interviewed. And that's, that's perfectly fine. I was just really happy to uh, really get what I got. And one of the things that stands out to me is the beginning cues and how there's this full chorus that you get. Uh, with the heightened uh, even action of the beginning of the piece. Like the first three cues that I'm going to play for the podcast here is main titles, brother and sister and Ivana full. Now with the main titles, we really get that, you know, full action type theme. And then, uh, you know, you, you get that, that chorus that really draws you in to uh, the film. And it's a far cry from some of the animated features that were in the nineties compared to, I mean, you get that with uh, land before time and uh, an American tale. You get those uh, because those stand out as beautiful pieces of music that, I mean, I've been listening to James Horner, the, uh, audio documentary on James Horner and I'm in part three of the documentary and it's just fantastic to see how James Horner used his music to really bring these emotional pieces to life and when I was re-watching uh, Gen 13 the movie I really noted that at the beginning of the movie you really get the feeling in the music that Emmons Plesner actually used for the beginning of when uh, Caitlin's father was killed, murdered right in front of her. And it just, it really, you know, draws at your heartstrings. And this is an animated movie. You, you don't expect to have this emotion draw you in so well. Yeah. And, you know, I was just, you know, listening to what you said and like trying to think of like, how many other cartoons actually use like orchestra? And the only other one that I can kind of think of was like 
the old DC stuff, you know, the animated series, like the opening theme is so like that, you know, quick action, like haunting and like, you know, again, we're, we're talking about a Gen 13 movie and there's like a full orchestra behind it, yeah. um, which is phenomenal. So, but have you come across anything else that tries or was maybe a little bit more successful in the, the blending of that we're playing around with these industrial sounds and the orchestra? I would say yes. Side example, Planet of the Apes. Uh, because Planet of the Apes, I mean, I'll be getting into it uh, either before this, Actually, it'll take place before this podcast goes up. Uh, however, I'll talk a lot about, um, I'll have talked, let me put it that way, I'll have talked about uh, the uh, different instruments that Jerry Goldsmith actually used in that movie. And it wasn't real orchestra elements. It was actually like tools and bowls and stainless steel uh, pieces of equipment uh, to create these unique and utter crazy sounds that he was able to use for the film. And that's just a real example to me because I find that a lot of modern scoring, and I mean, I can, I actually rule out things by John Williams and um, people like Harry Gregson Williams, I find that he has a better, they have a better grasp on what a real sound of orchestra is uh, compared to some other orchestra pieces that are, uh, are almost uh, hard to listen to because they're so chaotic and they're so, almost an assault on your ears. Um, you want, sometimes you just want something simple. So gotcha. So I mean, I, without, without stating too many examples and that's, you know, that's really hard to say too, because you look at a, a film score and you look at uh, how something should be and how something is. And to some of the modern day composers aren't getting the right, tone to the score so that's that's my thoughts um <laughs> on that so right now uh we're gonna play the first three cues here and then we'll get into some more uh more talking about the next uh film music on um gen 13 here so first we'll play uh main titles brother and sister and avana full Thank you. 
So next, um, I've got three other cues. Um, I put these cues into three separate sections to kind of give us a break as to not having too much music uh, to heighten the listening experience. Um, I bring out uh, Gen Factor, Threshold, and The Piper. Now with these cues, we see that like Caitlin and Roxy and Grunge are starting to realize change in their physical bodies and they generate this gen factor. And unlike the comic, comic of course, Threshold is uh, Caitlin's brother and it's their responsibility to bring him down. And it isn't so in the comics and you know, you can see, you can feel it in the tension in the score. Like you really feel it, um, especially with Threshold itself. Like that piece itself, you really get like this tense, like you're almost like, I don't know if I can take this much longer. And it's not a very long cue. It's only about two or three minutes long. But you get the feeling, oh, this is really a tense situation in the movie. What do you think? I'm I'm trying to remember exactly in the movie, you know, there there was certainly a lot of emotion that, that played out, you know, and I'll, I'll compare it to Batman, the animated series. And I mean, the, you know, in the best compliments possible, like there are real emotions happening. Like, you know, then the score certainly, you know, I certainly, knowing this podcast, you know, we mainly talk about the score, certainly paid a lot more attention to what was happening. But everything... I mean, even the subtle moments like that weren't as tense, like had good underlying emotions in it that, um, you know, I, so I'm thinking of like when they were being electrocuted, I don't know, is that part of it? Mm-hmm. Uh, to bring that factor out, like that was, you felt tense and it didn't feel like, you know, I've watched, you know, superheroes get tortured a ton of times, <laughs> yeah. uh, whether it's Teen Titans or anything else. And, it's usually a little flat. I mean, even in the X-Men cartoon, I think like Jean Grey screaming a lot, you know, there seemed to be some real, uh, uh, which, you know, more to me, you know, uh, Fairchild is very close to a Jean Grey counterpart. Um, But yeah, there was real emotions from when she like, it could have been so, so ridiculous when she transformed into you know, the gen factor was activated and, she, and, you know, she went basically from a meek, tiny, you know, young woman into like Scott Campbell, typical cheese, you know, cheesecake, busty babe, you know, like 90s superhero. And that, you know, I remember that scene going, you know, that could be really ridiculous. Uh, but at the same time, everything that played around it, it worked. Mm-hmm. I agree because uh, for Gen 13, for Caitlin Fairchild's transformation in the film, spoiler alert, uh, <laughs> that actually happens. Uh, but it's it's very it's very effective, and you almost like are gra- like if you're sitting on a chair and your your hands are on the arms of the chair, you almost want to grip into the chair by seeing that transformation happen and you feel it in the music. Like you feel the tenseness that is happening. You, you almost feel for her with the pain and anguish that she's going through for this change. 
So that's, you know, kind of something that I noticed as well. And it's not something that's real noticeable in a lot of under, other animated features, like you brought out, that uh, certain modern day uh, animated features for DC, for instance, don't, I mean, they have, you know, their action sequences and they have somebody getting stabbed and blood comes out and everything, but uh, it's not as like, oh, you know, you don't feel it as much in the music as you feel it in, like, say, this score. Yeah, I couldn't tell you, I mean, picking those movies apart, I mean, and I say pick apart because it, it, I it just had to, like, for the articles I read, I couldn't even tell you anything about the scores. And not like that music sounds really weird to me or that doesn't belong. But, I mean, the storytelling was so convoluted in some of those that, like, I don't care what... There could have been a masterpiece under one of those that it is really lacking. So one of the nice things, Gen 13, is like, it's not a perfect movie, um, you know, but extremely well-balanced, you know, with a good score that maybe, you know, helps that movie along. Because the first time I watched it, I probably wasn't paying too much attention to the music. music well, and you I were noticed- trying to at least watch the movie and get a sense of the characters and get an idea of what the story was. Yeah, so, but then the music still stood out to me. Um you know, there were certain moments where it, and like now, gun to my head, tell me something about the score of any DC movie, and I'm just completely blank. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, if you go back in my archive, um, you'll note that I had interviewed a composer named Kevin Kleesh. Um, He composed music for uh, Justice League War and Superman Unbound. Now, those two features, um, I've only seen Justice League War, uh, but it really, you know, gave me a sense of when I listened to those different scores, um, you get a real feel for the orchestral way that even Kevin Kleesh was bringing out those scores. And it's a really interesting interview. So I encourage you to look back on that episode and listen to it because uh, there's a lot of interesting factors that I bring out in it. I will, and anybody else who hasn't listened should totally as well. Yeah, and because I mean, hey, I don't have enough downloads as it is, so uh, it's it's great to be able to talk about that, and it's just it's a real pleasure to be able to interview certain composers, and I don't get a chance to do it that often. I may even get a chance to interview uh, Harry Gregson Williams sometime this week, so that'll be nice. Do you awesome. know who that, who that is? Uh, I do not. He did the score to The Martian. Um, he did the score to all the Shrek movies. He did uh, Cowboys and Aliens. He did. He's done a lot of film scoring. So uh, that, I hope I get a chance to interview him. That's right. I have not. I have not seen The Martian, and uh, oh, you need to see it. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's like it's, it's on the good. list. It's very good. I. I want to own it because I've rented it from the library multiple times because I like it so much. <laughs> uh, so, okay. So uh, we're going to go ahead and play those next uh, three cues. It's called Gen Factor, Threshold, and The Piper. Mm-hmm. 
So we've come down to another end of an episode of Soundtrack Alley. And Ryan, I certainly want to thank you for being on the show. Um, it's been great talking about the comic series of Gen 13 from the 90s and really getting into the dynamic of what Gen 13 was, what it evolved to be, and hopefully what we can see in the near future for comics. And uh, what do you think? Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Um, this, this was a ton of fun. Um, you know, I am always looking for new ways to experience the comics medium uh, and being able to experience, you know, movie I've never seen and then take a look at, you know, just the music behind it as well. Um, you know, the last time I really thought about a music breakdown was probably like Spawn the movie. Oh, um, <laughs> terrible. Because everybody had that soundtrack. <laughs> yeah. um, well, there's you know, a difference between a soundtrack and yes. a movie score. Um, I've never listened. I've never listened to the Spawn score. I don't know how it is. So I, 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 I meant s- soundtrack is fun. Yeah, yeah. But no, this this was great. Um, I'm, you know, more of a fan of Gen 13 than I was when I started. So like, your job is done. Like, just you know, close <laughs> the laptop. Everything's good. Uh, <laughs> but this this was an absolute ton of fun, and I can't thank you enough for having me on. Yeah, yeah. And so I'd like to ask, um, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me uh, at Hebrews. That's H-E-B-R-U-I-S-E um, on Twitter. You can find me writing. I do uh, horror comic reviews for horrorwriters.com. And then you can also find me over at TwoHeadedNerd.com uh, where I do break down DC animated movies, but you know, my real passion is uh, interviewing creators and I have a column over there called uh, Between the Balloons. And oh, okay. I just re- I just recorded uh, our pilot uh, YouTube podcast for Ray Gun Reviews where I'm going to be talking with a 10-year-old and we're going to be talking about what he likes about comics, what I like about comics, and uh, is it appropriate for, you know, is it something for me? Is it something for him? Uh, and that's going to be a ton of fun. And that's cool. the pilot was recorded today and hopefully we'll get a couple episodes out uh, within the next month. Nice. Nice. That's usually how I like to do it is I like to be able to uh, record a few podcasts ahead of time. So that way I have a few set up and that's why a lot of times I will structure my podcast really well. I mean, this, this gives my listeners even an idea into my creative process that I have to actually schedule it a few weeks, uh, sometimes months ahead. I've got some podcasts coming up uh, for August. I've got uh, the uh, Jack Kirby 100s. Um, It's that month is for devoted to different creations of Jack Kirby, such as Captain America. Um, I'm going to be doing the Fantastic Four and uh, Thor uh, in that month, as well as the movie Argo that um, Jack Kirby did the storyboards for the fake movie that was uh, sanctioned by the government. That's awesome. I had no idea. Yeah. I'm looking, I, I'm looking forward to that. It's, a, it's an actual real event that actually happened to get six people out of Iran. And so it was a, you'll, you'll find it very interesting. And I'll go into some of the history on that 
And then also, what's really exciting is coming up. I mean, this episode will air later. However, the week of O Comic Con, which is uh, July 6th or 7th through the 9th, um, I'll be able to interview Phil Hester uh, for uh, the Jack Kirby uh, fundraiser that he's doing through the Hero Initiative. So I've got to come up with some questions to ask him in regard to it, and I'm hoping to bring it out as a special episode. That sounds great. Well, I've already subscribed and downloaded, and I think everybody listening should too. All right. Well, that's that's awesome, and I appreciate it. Um, I'd also like to thank Jillian Orwall uh, for doing my intro today. Uh, as always, I'm going to play my final three cues. One thing I'd really like to note about these cues is I'll be playing War, Power Showdown, and The Final from the movie. Now, with this animated feature, I feel that Amont's Plesner actually borrowed a few cues from other composers. Case in point is with War. As I was listening to this very cue, uh, you can listen to it and you can feel, that sounds like Indiana Jones. And I feel that he probably borrowed a few uh, pieces or pieces of notes from Indiana Jones because you can definitely feel it uh, as it's right from, it almost is taken right from Last Crusade. And uh, if you really listen to it carefully, you can, you can feel it. And it's like, oh, wow, that's Indiana Jones. Um, but he did, you know, did it in a different element. There was, you know, different music that uh, ended up giving us this heightened action. And uh, to where even you brought out at the very end, you get this techno weird uh, piece that doesn't last very long, but it's still kind of jarring. Uh, toward the end of the score. Um, so with all of this said, how is your final sum up of the Gen 13 movie? I think anybody who's a fan of any superhero animation should go check it out. It's free on YouTube. Um, Make sure you, know, you watch we, the HD version. Yes. Uh, go check it out. I mean, I think it's for if you like Batman the Animated Series, if you like the X Men cartoon, uh, this is a perfect addition. Or you like those early uh, Bruce Tim DC uh, movies, this is absolutely uh, a solid Sunday watch. Yeah, exactly. So um, you can find me on soundtrackalley.net, uh, soundtrackalley.podbean.com. Uh, you can listen to the show on Podbean, iTunes, Google Play. Now on Google Play, it's all one word, Soundtrack Alley. Um, there's no spaces in that. Um, I also learned recently that it can be found on Amazon Alexa, uh, which is, you know, you can tell your Google Echo or whatever it is, uh, that little speaker thing, you can say, hey, play Soundtrack Alley, and it'll go right to it, or, well, hopefully, and, but, you know, that's an interesting way of viewing the podcast. Um, you can also send me an email at soundtrackalley or at yahoo.com. Uh, if you have any questions or comments regarding uh, an episode that had come out or 
uh, even wanting to be on my show. So um, until next time, enjoy these cues and happy listening.
Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley, the podcast. I hope you take some time to review me my podcast on iTunes and also listen to it on Podbean. And if you leave a review or rating on there, it'll help us get noticed on iTunes. Thank you so much. Have a good day. <laughs>